Good morning. As Johnny said, um, we are reading from Luke's Gospel right from the beginning. And if you've got one of the church Bibles, it's on page 1025. So that's Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zachariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zachariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, well, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, 
but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his fake favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of God. Thank you so much. Pray as we come to uh, God's, there we go, let's pray as we come to God's words together. Heavenly Father, I love this season, this time of year, this opportunity to reflect again on promises made and promises kept, opportunity to again remember that you came to us, Lord, that is always the direction of travel, you always take the initiative, you always come to us to enable us to come to you. We pray this morning you would come to us again in your word, by your spirit. Speak to our hearts what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, The poet uh, W.H. Auden, he wrote a poem about Christmas back in the 1930s. And actually, the poem itself, um, it's not so much about Christmas. It's more about the aftermath of Christmas, the kind of after-Christmas feeling. At one point, he writes this, kind of saying Christmas is over. There, there are enough leftovers to do, warmed up for the rest of the week. Not that we have much appetite. Having drunk such a lot, stayed up so late, attempted quite unsuccessfully to love all of our relatives. You know, that feeling. I don't really. I don't really. I do, I do like my relatives. Um, but then, then he starts looking ahead. Not, not um, so much to the next Christmas, but to the next time we will see Christ. If Christmas was Jesus' first coming, then every Christian is looking forward to the second Christmas when Jesus comes again. And he writes this, and it will be on the screen. To those who have seen the child, talking about Jesus, talking about believing in Jesus, to those who have seen the child, however dimly, however incredulously, the time being is, in a sense, the most trying time of all. To those who know Jesus, that the time being, the wait until we see Jesus again, is, in a sense, the most trying time of all. See, waiting, sometimes waiting is brilliant, isn't it? The anticipation, the sense of what is to come. Sometimes it is incredibly hard. There are doubts. Will we see Jesus again? There's all the stuff that happens to us while we wait, the good and the bad. There's the fear, will I last? Will I keep going? The time being is, in a sense, the most trying time of all. Now we're starting this new series in Luke and in verses 1 to 4, Luke tells us what it is he is doing as he writes the gospel. He's writing fact. He wants us to know that. He says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke has said he's talked to all the eyewitnesses, he's gathered all the facts, and he's written them all down so that the reader can have confidence about what has happened. 
The gospel about Jesus is true. It is fact, says Luke. But Luke is writing more than facts. And this is important for us to get. He's writing fulfillment as well. He begins by saying, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. See, this is important, isn't it? Because Luke isn't just writing about facts to be understood and learned, as if it's some kind of history lesson. No, these facts, he tells us, are also fulfillment. They fit into a story. A story that stretches back hundreds, thousands of years before Luke wrote. A story that started in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation of the world, and it moved through Genesis 3 with the fall of the world, and then Genesis 12 and the promises to restore the world again. And then on and on the story carried, with promises and prophecies piling up on top of each other, waiting to be accomplished, waiting to be fulfilled. But then the story stopped. See, before Luke wrote his gospel, there was 400 years of silence. No fresh revelation from God. No words from God. The story, if you like, it was on hold. And these prophecies and promises and proclamations, they were left hanging in the air, unfulfilled. The people were waiting. And that is where Luke's story starts with a couple who were waiting. And as Auden says, the time being, in a sense, the waiting is the most trying time of all. That's what we're going to think about. Let's have a look. First of all, waiting and waiting. Now Luke begins his account not with Mary and Joseph and Jesus, but with another family, Zechariah, Elizabeth. And notice what we're told about them straight away in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Luke is, is kind of toppling over himself to make something really clear to us. Zechariah is a priest, and Elizabeth... Well, she's descended from Aaron, the original, the great high priest. You see, there is something priestly about both Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth herself wasn't a priest like Zechariah was, but there's something priestly about her, given her descendants, where she's come from. And one of the key functions of a priest was to represent the people before God. They stand before God on the people's behalf. And I think in Luke's narrative, that is what Zechariah and Elizabeth do. They represent God's people. They are a picture of God's people. We see that even more clearly in verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Zechariah and Elizabeth are in some ways presented to us as the ideal Israelite. They are like the founding parents of Israel, Abraham and Sarah. 
If you know the story, you know that Abraham and Sarah were considered righteous by God. So are Zechariah and Elizabeth. Abraham and Sarah were childless. So are Zechariah and Elizabeth. Abraham and Sarah were advanced in years. Is that a polite way of saying very, very old? Probably. They were advanced in years. So are Zechariah and Elizabeth. Do you see? They represent Israel. They're presented before us as the ideal Israelites. And what are they doing? Well, they're waiting. They're waiting for a baby. But more than that, along with the rest of Israel, they're waiting for God to fulfill those promises that have been left hanging in the air for 400 years. And I think they show us how you wait. How do you wait for God to fulfill his promises? Three things really quickly. We'll see them as they pop up on the screen. First, they obeyed. Both of them, verse 6, were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. They're obedient. I don't, I don't think it's saying that they never sinned. The Bible elsewhere tells us that only the Lord Jesus didn't sin. So it's not saying that. But it is saying that when they did fail in some way, they kept the law of sacrifice. And they found forgiveness and mercy. In that sense, they were blameless. Their record was clear because they kept the law of the sacrifices. So they obeyed and then they prayed, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The burning of incense is representative of the people's prayers. And so what's going on outside as Zechariah is burning incense? Verse 10, when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. See, what do you do as you wait for the Lord to fulfill his promises? You pray. Lord, hear us. Lord, help us. Lord, do all that you have promised. They obeyed, they prayed, and finally they suffered. Verse 7. But they were childless, because Elizabeth, Elizabeth was not able to conceive. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they suffer as they wait. Remember what Auden says, the time being, the waiting, is in a sense the most trying time of all. Childlessness has come up quite a few times in the last few weeks, not been intentional. And for some, I know that it's incredibly painful. Why do we experience these things? Why did Zechariah and Elizabeth experience these things? Because they are waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. And as long as we're waiting, we will suffer. So how do you wait for the Lord? You obey, you pray, and you suffer. And our situation is similar, isn't it? Yes, we've seen more of God's promises fulfilled than Zechariah and Elizabeth. We live on the other side of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. But we are still waiting. The story is not yet finished. And there are moments, and there are more immediate things. Not necessarily the return of Christ that we're waiting for, although that is true, but more immediate things that we might be waiting for in terms of God's help, in terms of helping us get through life now. And as we wait, what do we do? 
we do what Zechariah and Elizabeth did. We obey, we pray, and we suffer. And that is hard, isn't it? I remember the days before mobile phones, and uh, you would agree to meet someone somewhere, you know, let's, let's, let's meet up, and you, you might phone up on one of those old landlines where it was all plugged into the wall, and say, we're, we're going to meet somewhere at, at some point. And the thing is, you had to then just go to that place and wait for them and hope that they would turn up. There was no way of communicating with them. You know, if they're 10 minutes late, you couldn't just drop them a text or call them on their phone. You just had to trust their word. And after about 15 minutes, you know, you'd start feeling a little bit anxious and think, should I just head on? In Luke 1, the people had been waiting for 400 years. There was no new revelation from God in that time. They just had his original promise, his original word. To wait that long is hard. And what kept them waiting so faithfully? Well, I think their names give us the answer. Zechariah, Yahweh, God remembers. Elizabeth, Yahweh, God is faithful. See, they carried on waiting faithfully, praying, obeying, suffering, even though they'd heard nothing from God for 400 years because they knew their God never forgot and never failed. And that is true for us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus promised he would return. And the Lord never forgets. And he is always faithful. And so we wait and we wait. And we obey and we pray and we suffer. Because he is faithful. And he never forgets. Waiting and waiting. Secondly, waiting and pointing. Now, we've just seen that while they wait, they pray. And there's something urgent, I think, about this time of prayer that is going on in verse 10. When the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Or more literally, all the multitude were praying. Now, Luke doesn't mean every Israelite. But he's saying there is a huge crowd. There is something that has stirred up people in great numbers to come and pray at this time. We don't know for sure what they were praying. But when we get to the angel, Gabriel, and his response, we, we kind of sense what they're praying. They're praying for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Lord, you promised a savior to rescue us from our slavery. You promised us a light that would shine in the darkness. You promised us a child, a king, who would come and bring justice and peace and life. Lord, please send us that child. Directly or indirectly, they were praying for a child. And of course, what have Zechariah and Elizabeth been praying for all their life? A child. Maybe for different reasons. But you see, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and all Israel are pounding on the door of the Lord. Father, hear us. Father, help us. Father, send us a child. And as they pray, Zechariah is chosen to go into the temple to serve as a priest. And it's then that their prayers are answered. 
Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. Now, Zechariah is terrified. And on the one hand, you, you, you get that, don't you? You don't often see an angel. It doesn't happen every day. But then maybe he shouldn't have been so surprised. He's been praying all his life for a child. The people outside are fervently praying to God. He's just entered the holy place where God is said to dwell. And what does Gabriel say, verse 13? Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. It's as if Gabriel is saying to Zechariah, you've been praying for years and years. Why are you so surprised and shocked? You know, at Christmas, you love to get someone that, that perfect gift. It doesn't happen often, does it? But you just love it when you find that perfect gift and you give it to someone. And maybe they're surprised. Maybe they're, they're, they're shocked, their joy. can't believe you got this for me. That's brilliant. But if they kept saying, no, I literally cannot believe that you did this for me, it gets a little bit awkward, doesn't it? Because what they're really saying is, I just didn't think you were that kind and that good and that thoughtful. It's a little bit like Zechariah's response to God. Can't believe you're answering my prayer. We've got to be careful, haven't we, not to have that kind of attitude. We pray, but we don't really expect God to hear our prayers because we don't really think he is that loving, that thoughtful, that powerful. No, he is a good, gracious God. And look how he answers Elizabeth and Zechariah's prayers. Verse 13, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. They have a son. John, another name with significance, it means gift. This child is a wonderful gift from God to Zechariah and Elizabeth. A child that will bring them joy and delight. But he is not just their gift. Listen to the end of verse 14. And many will rejoice because of his birth. This baby is a gift from God. A gift to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But more than that, he's a gift to all people. All Israel had been praying for a child. Elizabeth and Zechariah had been praying for a child. And God answers both their prayers. And let's see, why is he such a gift to all people? Well, have a look down at verse 16. This child will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. In the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah, he felt like he was the only one left, that everyone had turned away from God. But that didn't stop him. With a bit of encouragement, he stood against the tide. He faced down those in the highest authority and he called them to turn back to the living God. That is the kind of spirit that John the Baptist is going to have. He will stand against the tide and call people back to God. 
And I think it's interesting that there's a, there's a bit of a chain here, isn't there? One thing leads to another. So first, John will turn people back to God, verse 15, 16. And then he will turn parents back to their children, verse 17. And then he will turn the disobedient to righteousness. And I think they come in that order for a reason. See, here's how I think it works. If we want our lives to be reformed, so that we turn from disobedience to righteousness, from hatred and greed and anger, to to love and generosity and patience, if we want that kind of reformation to happen in our lives, then it starts with our hearts being turned back to God. You can't reform your life unless you reform your heart. We want to turn our lives around. We need to turn our hearts back to God. So let me just suggest something. This isn't really where we're landing on this point, but let me just suggest something. If you are struggling, some area in your life, addiction, some kind, anger, laziness, greed, whatever it might be, before you turn to some strategy, or or, or some plan, or or some bit of practical advice, or even before you turn to some kind of counseling, all these things are brilliant, but before you do that, turn back to the Lord. Come to him, meditate upon his glory and goodness and love and authority and majesty, confess your sin, reconfess your devotion to him. If you want to turn your life around, first turn to the Lord. Here is John's mission, to bring reformation, to turn people back to God and then turn them back to obedience. But I think what the angel Gabriel says next is a bit of a surprise. The people, they've been praying for a savior to come. The long-promised child who would be king and rescue God's people. And as he listened to Gabriel, Zechariah must have thought, this is that child. John is that child. But then Gabriel says at the end of verse 17, John will make a people prepared to meet their Lord. John's mission isn't to be the saviour. It is to get people ready for the saviour, ready to meet their God. He is a gift from God, but he's not the gift from God. John is a miraculous baby, but he is not the miraculous baby. John is a son, but he is not the son. Instead, he comes to get people ready. He comes to prepare them to meet their God. You see that in John's life. He calls people back to God. He convicts them of their sins so they are ready to hear Jesus' message of salvation. He tries to push back the darkness that is so ingrained in people's hearts so that there is space and room for them to be able to hear what Jesus has to say. Now, I'm rapidly hitting kind of middle age. um, And that means I've suddenly taken a massive interest in the Second World War. I don't know where it's come from. It surprised me, um, actually. I've started listening to this kind of podcast that, that kind of goes back over World War II. It's very geeky. Um, anyway, there was an episode recently about the D-Day landings. And France obviously was occupied by German forces. And the Allies were going to send over a huge army to, to liberate France. But 
Before the main army turned up, thousands of paratroops were, were flown in over enemy lines and dropped down. And their job was to push back Nazi forces to take out some of the defenses and basically to create a space to prepare the ground so that the rest of the army could land. That's John. John, it was like one of those paratroopers. He came first. He came to push back the forces of sin and evil in people's hearts, calling them to turn back to God so that there was space for Jesus' message to be heard. He came to prepare people's hearts so that they were ready to hear Jesus' message. Do you know what? Sometimes our task is the same as John's, isn't it? Sometimes as we wait for the return of Jesus, it might be that our role is simply to prepare the ground, to prepare the way so that the message of Jesus can at some point be heard. And just as John died before he saw Jesus' victory on the cross, before he saw the thousands upon thousands who in the end turned to Jesus, well, we may never see the fruit of our endeavors. Like John, we prepare, we point people through our conversations, through the way that we live, through the different priorities and values that we hold to, through our confidence in Christ. All of this may only be preparing, making more plausible the gospel to those who live around us so that later someone else can come and can proclaim the message of Jesus, and they will see the fruit. As we wait, we point. That's what we're called to do, point to Jesus. And it may be that someone else experiences the fruit of all of our pointing, but that's okay. As we wait, we point to Jesus. Waiting and waiting, waiting and pointing, finally waiting and trusting. So Zechariah hears this incredible promise from the angel. It's what he's been praying for, what he's been hoping for all his life. He's going to have a son. But then you look at his reaction. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well long in years. See, Zechariah Struggles to believe it. And those doubts, that slight disbelief, has consequences. Not for God's plan. John is still going to be born. But there are consequences for Zechariah. Listen to the angel's response, verse 19. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. He could have just stopped there, you know, like that, that would just silence you, wouldn't it? He goes on, I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens, because you didn't believe my words, which will come true. See, because Zechariah doubted the Lord, Zechariah is unable to speak until John is born. And later we find out, actually, he's deaf as well. He can't hear. Zechariah's doubts do not change God's promises. 
God does not rely on the strength of our faith to fulfill his promises and accomplish his plans. John is still going to be born. But Zechariah's doubts do impact his experience and enjoyment of those promises. He cannot speak. He cannot hear. He can't share the news with anyone. He cannot share the anticipation with others. He cannot enjoy telling people of God's goodness and grace and power and love. And even if he could, he cannot hear their response and be encouraged by their enjoyment and their praises to God. See, when we doubt, the plans and promises of God are never diminished. They're never affected by that. But our enjoyment of them is. We lose out on a sense of assurance and confidence. Our ups and our downs are much higher ups and much, maybe not that high, but they're much more up and down. We don't have that kind of even keel that comes from assurance of knowing that what our God promises will come true. We don't enjoy the promises as much as we could. Contrast that with Elizabeth's reaction. Even if Zechariah couldn't tell Elizabeth everything that God had promised, obviously she was going to find out. I mean, I'm no medical person, didn't study much about biology, but I assume she's going to notice a baby growing inside her at some point. And regardless of what Zechariah was or was not able to communicate to Elizabeth, she knew exactly who was responsible for that baby. Listen to verse 25. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. There is no doubt in her mind. She confesses her confidence in the Lord. He has done this. And look what comfort that brings her as she waits. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. You see, for Elizabeth, as she waits, the circumstances of life no longer define her. The disgrace that may have come because she hadn't had a child. Terrible, I know, but that's how things perhaps worked in that culture. But whatever was the cause of that disgrace, it is gone. Instead, she lives in the joy of being assured of God's favor towards her. The Lord loves me. That's what she knew every morning. The Lord is with me. The Lord is for me. That is how you wait. The time being, the waiting is in a sense the most trying time. But if in that time we are trusting like Elizabeth trusted, it will be hard. It will be incredibly hard. But like Elizabeth, we can be assured of God's favor towards us. Whatever the storms, whatever the ups and downs, trusting like Elizabeth means you can know the Lord's favor. Know that he loves you, that he is with you, and that he will bring you home. That is a much better way to wait than to doubt. Trust the Lord like Elizabeth did. 
So the time being, the waiting is in a sense the most trying time as we look forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus. How do we wait? Well, we obey, we pray, and yes, we suffer, and we point, and we trust. Moment of quiet, then I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, so much for the joy of seeing promises made and promises fulfilled. Lord, we are in a much better place than Zechariah and Elizabeth. We have seen so much more of the story unfold. And yet there is still more to come. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be like Elizabeth. That we would trust you. That we would know that we live under and in your favor and be confident that all you have said will come true. Help us to pray, help us to obey, help us to suffer well, help us to point others to the Lord Jesus. Pray us in Jesus' name, amen.